Hey, it's your boy, Deacon Jonathan Stewart, with your show of shows, Talk Gnosis, where we discuss Gnosticism, the esoteric, integral spirituality, meditation, Ken Wilber, societal collapse, contemplation, Vegemite, Tim Tams, contemplation, occultism, and whatever else we feel like talking about. Uh, our guest this ep is the futurist from One Day in the Future. It's Bishop Tim Mansfield, who joins us for a second installment on integral spirituality. Hello, Bishop Tim. Hello, Deacon John. Good to hear you reaching out to the Australian audience there. That's good. <laughs> yes. Uh, we wanted, we, we're, we're Big Ten. We want to bring everybody in. We're always looking to grow our audience. Uh, unfortunately, our, our usual co-host, uh, Bishop Laney, had a last-minute emergency. He couldn't join us tonight. And the 20, 30, 40 other people that I sometimes grab as co-hosts also <laughs> weren't available at the last moment. But... Um, last show which i will put in the show notes uh you definitely should watch it before you watch this one even if you're an expert on gnosticism even if you're an expert on integral spirituality this is a part two uh and last time we got through two out of ten questions so i'm starting to feel like <laughs> <laughs> this might be number two in a series we'll see I had a I had a friend uh, who was watching the last episode and then sort of texting me live while he was watching it. <laughs> At one point he said, they asked you a question, you just talked straight over the top of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, before, now, we really have no time to waste, but uh, I do at the top of the show want to get into the least fun part, which is the money stuff. Usually I do it at the end because I forget, but I know all of you people turn it off. I love you anyways, but uh, it does cost us money to make the show. We hire the world's best digital studio, 99 Perspectives out of Chicago. If you ever need to do a show, there's going to be a law soon where everybody will have to have a YouTube show or podcast. Definitely check them out. Uh, and Henceforth, this show is brought to you by viewers like you. If you are able to support us, please go to patreon.com slash Gnostic, where you can donate as little as a dollar per piece of media per month. You can also cap that. So, hey, I don't want to pay any more than $5. I don't want to pay any more than $1. I don't want to pay any more than $2. If you do not want to pay into recurring payments, then you can go to paypal.me slash Gnostic, and you can do a one-time donation. Uh, we appreciate it, and I know that these are particularly hard times. If you're unable to donate, please share the show, tell people about it, post on your social media, email to a friend, like and subscribe, leave comments, leave reviews on the podcatcher of your choice. All of this helps us out immensely. So, we got that out of the way. Bishop Tim. Hi. Where where were we? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, I, have, I have no idea. I have no recollection of what on earth we talked about last time. So let's just let's. It's a new day. It's a new, new day. day. Okay, uh, we'll hop into it here. So, what does integralism actually encourage you to do? Like integral spirituality. Like, is is there specific practices associated with integral spirituality? The same way that there is with say, hey, if if I say Buddhism to you, people are going to think meditation. If I say Christianity to you, people are going to think prayer. If I say Wicca to you, people are going to think spells and rituals. So, is there is there something kind of uh, associated or a body of practice or what what, what the integral spiritualists do? Frustratingly, the answer is, frustratingly kind of the answer is yes and no. Um, I'll st the no part first. So the no part first, because integral, as I was trying to sort of say last time, integrals, uh, it's, a, it's a theory about theories, right? And, and to some extent, integral spirituality is a, is a theory about 
spiritualities and how different spiritual systems and different ways of different modes of spiritual thought kind of fit together um, and where they fit into a broader overarching framework. So it's probably better to think of it as a way of putting in context spiritual practices you might acquire from different traditions or or pick up from reading different things or, or hanging out with different teachers rather than a spiritual system itself which then mandates its own system of practice so it's more that it puts other practices in context so that's the no part no there okay. aren't any the yes part <laughs> is there was a period in the early part of the century where when Ken Wilber's Integral Institute was quite big and so there was quite a lot of it's quite a lot of people kind of showing up and saying what do we do and so kind of you know there was a market demand I guess for practices and there was quite a lot of thinking and innovation around um, what an integral practice system might look like so there was there's a book called Integral Life Practice um, and what it tries to do is take what that movement, I guess, tried to do and what the book tries to kind of pin down is both to look at that kind of big meta map and kind of say, okay, well, what are practices that might come from different traditions that could fit into the different locations in that map to give a more kind of a big picture kind of holistic sense of what the whole of an integral practice life might look like. Um, and there are some specific practices that are kind of like secular spiritual practices or um, that that are kind of taken from traditions and kind of I keep doing that because I'm kind of sanding off the sanding off the tradition specific stuff and kind of making this sort of beautiful little piece of secular practice. Then also some things that aren't spiritual practices, but things like practices around uh, shadow and psychodynamic issues or physical practices or um, stuff like that. So different. It's a sort of a integral life practice is a way of kind of mapping out different kinds of practices you might want to have in your whole life not just your spiritual life. And so some of those cross over between different realms and some of them are kind of like carefully composed little things that fit within those realms. So that's a bit of a vague answer, but there's a lot of them. It's a, it's quite a thick book. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of characteristic things. So like there was a, the book has a, um, something like a Tai Chi form three body kata that goes through uh, different ways of kind of bringing to life your physical body and your energetic body and then your causal body, as they put it, which is your field of awareness that, that's ever-present. That's interesting and fun, and that kind of draws on various traditions to kind of compose that. And then there's a popular little practice called the 321 shadow process, which is a way of working with psychological shadow. Again, not a spiritual practice, really, but but something that's helpful for spiritual people. Yeah, we can or, it a little bit more as we go, if you like. Exactly, or essential. So we'll we'll definitely well, talk well, about. Well, yeah. Without <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one mind on this matter, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, it's it's uh, the I think definitely a, a huge point of agreement between you and I, and I suspect many people who come on the show that uh, addressing the shadow is an important part of of spiritual practice. And if you want to be a spiritual person, but I'm sure we will address that, or perhaps a whole show on shadow. Halloween is coming up. Uh, could, so. Oh, Let me just sorry, I don't want to talk over you, but just to just to no, round no. that off, I think the the one other perspective that kind of occurs to me just as I finished off there is that I think from from my point of view, I think kind of this is this is a sort of a mainstream view amongst integral practitioners. There's three things that you really need to be paying close attention to. One one is um, care of the physical body, and really that's got to mean some kind of physical exercise because that's the ground. That's the ground of your practice, right? So 
um, Ken Wilber legendarily lifted weights for quite a long time. So <laughs> it's not mandatory, but something like that that keeps you, you know, stretching and the normal stuff, stretching and, and some cardiovascular exercise and some weightlifting, you know, some kind of resistance exercise that kind of builds your physical strength. And a lot of esoteric teachers will tell you the same thing. That's a really robust thing in Western esotericism that you've got to look after the physical body all the way back to Socrates. So that's important. Second thing, meditation. Absolutely. That's a, that's a, um, meditate. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Ken Wilber wrote a blog post when he uh, he has a lot of health issues and and there was one uh, one very serious time when he wound up in hospital and he he posted a blog post entitled Meditate and Eat Your Veggies, which <laughs> just pretty sums up the kind of the pith of it. Um, so meditation, although that's a very big Pandora's box of of like what on earth are we talking about? But anyway, meditate. So physical body meditate and shadow like work on the ways in which your psychological system is not disclosing things again we can delve more into that yeah so those three things something about your shadow something about meditation something about your physical body okay yeah because like, i noticed when i was googling about it uh, a meditation did seem to come up quite a bit but that's again a whole show that i should do sometime what is meditation <laughs> right because it is that would be a great it, conversation to have yeah yeah it, it's a term that describes literally and i'm not i'm not over exaggerating i know people misuse the term literally but i would say a million different practices at least so yeah. uh but meditation does seem big and, and integral uh, uh spirituality from from what i've come across at least so um so you mentioned ken wilbur uh, uh, you just mentioned him. We talked about him last show. Is, is Ken Wilber, is he like the Pope of integral theory? And, and can you do integral spirituality without him? Oh, you can absolutely do integral spirituality without him as a, as a human being. Uh, I think it would be strange to ignore his theoretical contributions and try to come up with a configuration of integral that completely ignores what he's written. Um, I don't think you have to read everything that he's ever written, but I think at least getting your head around the basic kind of map that we talked about last time of developmental stages and cycle of uh, spiritual states um, of lines of development and of the interior exterior individual collective map. I think those are really useful um, for a lot of people. <laughs> excuse me, Siri's trying to talk to me. Go away, Siri. <laughs> I've put the phone on do not disturb, but that doesn't apparently apply to Siri. Um, <laughs> I'm completely thrown off. Uh, a lot of people don't like the shape of that map. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, you can put it away. A lot of people uh, approach integral more from the perspective of Jean Gebser um, than from Ken Wilber, but they still know Wilber, right? Like they've still read some Wilber and they've still kind of understood it. So you can absolutely ignore the human being. There's a lot of things that, that Wilbur has said, particularly over the last 10 years or so, that have rubbed a lot of people the, the wrong way, and you might dislike his his mood and tone sometimes, but I think it would be odd to try to just completely ignore the stuff that he's written and the models that he's come up with. I think you've got to take them in, make what use you want of them, and then, and then make your own decisions. Right. He's not the Pope in that sense. Um, he's the Pope about his own theory. <laughs> and there was a, and to be fair there was a period late 90s early 20th century where that was that was integral mm -hmm. right so to do integral in any kind of meaningful way you really had to be in ken's theory um yeah. in the last 10 15 years that's we've the global community's kind of moved on from that there's a lot of there's a lot of other thinkers and people in that community and he seeded a a kind of a more fertile movement i think it's a helpful and productive thing Right. But you would say that you would at least have to grapple with him. Um, 
even yeah. if you don't agree with everything that he's saying, but in yeah. some way to approach integral spirituality, you have to at least uh, address him, you know, work with his ideas at least a tiny bit. You've, you've got to have understood it in the first place. And so that right. you've got a, a, a way to, uh, a reason for kind of putting it down again. Um, yeah. th and there certainly are people that don't. There are certainly people that look at Wilbur from a distance, kind of go, ooh, I don't like that, and then go off in some other direction and they miss out key things about some of his, he's got some, those, those five things that he picks out, are, you've got to kind of get your head around those five things, whether you do them in quite the same way that, that he does them. Um, I think you've still got to do them. Did we talk about Arquil and? Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. Good. So we're always looking to grow our audience. I'll be open about that. Uh, we often do shows on different topics and how they connect to Gnosticism or how they could connect with Gnosticism. That sometimes brings in some new people. So mm -hmm. we're hoping that uh, for, uh, that's not the only reason we have you on, of course, because I've been fascinated by this integral spirituality. Nobody knows who I am. So. Yes, exactly. It's a, it's a fraud hope. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I am hoping that the YouTube algorithm works its magic and somebody who loves integral spirituality is going to come across this awesome video. And mm. I uh, so I'm, I'm curious, what what could someone who's involved in integral spirituality get out of Gnosticism? Why would they possibly be interested in looking into Gnosticism, integrating Gnosticism into their spirituality, you know, looking at the ancient Gnostic texts? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, well, part of the answer, I think, is is the path I took because I was into integral before I was into Gnosticism. And so for me, Gnosticism is a way of engaging with a bigger picture of what Christian tradition is actually. So for me, it's um, Christianity. The history of Christianity is very much about plotting a path, a very narrow path through various kinds of orthodoxy where you're allowed to believe some things and you're not allowed to believe certain other things. And Gnosticism is a way of jailbreaking that an orthodox conception. Most, many Gnostics at least, ground themselves in some aspects of Christianity. Some don't. Some kind of really place themselves kind of out to the side of Christianity. But but I think understanding modern Gnosticism and ancient Gnosticism, particularly studying Gnostic text, um, is a way, if you've come from a Christian background, it's a way of kind of blowing your head open and kind of understanding the broader terrain of which Christianity was a part. Uh, and that's useful. I think for folks that didn't grow up Christian, Gnosticism is just weird and interesting and cool. <laughs> it should, it's, a, it's part of the bedrock of the Western tradition. So it, it bleeds off into all the other, all, the, all Western esotericism has some roots, at least, in uh, first, second century Gnosticism yeah. and, and Cathars and Bogomils and, and all the sort of... Um, dualistic systems so it's a it's a part of understanding what the what the western esoteric tradition is for folks that are more in the um it's weird to say east isn't it because they're they're north of me yeah <laughs> but the northern <laughs> traditions the northern traditions of buddhism and hinduism <laughs> you know it, it opens up a uh, gnosticism i think opens up an aspect of of uh, Western spirituality that that for Eastern folks is more recognizable in some ways yeah. than mainstream Christianity is. So I think that's helpful. Also, um, if you're a, if you're into Wilbur, Wilbur writes about uh, Plotinus all the time. Okay. Right. So, and the Neoplatonics. And there's um, you know, Plotinus didn't love the Gnostics, but mm -hmm. the Gnostics and the Neoplatonics lived in a 
in a similar sort of heady brew of uh, of philosophical speculation at that well, time. Well, he didn't like them because it's, I mean, there are different schools and they had some serious disagreements, but at the same time, it's also narcissism of small differences, right? Like Plotinus is like, these guys are saying some pretty similar things to me. I don't want They're my really wrong to run about off. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. And the same and the same for the original kind of uh, heresiologists in the early church. Yeah. There's so many similarities, but this particular thing is really wrong and you need to not think it. Yeah. 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 So also, simply because there's a lot of people saying you shouldn't think about Gnosticism is a really good reason to think about Gnosticism. Exactly. Um, from an integral point of view, because the concern of any person into integral theory ought to be what's getting excluded or denied from my current way of thinking and how can I seek to include that thing? Because the definition of integral thinking is taking in all possibilities and finding a place for it in your worldview and leaving nothing out. Yeah. Oh, and sorry, I did interrupt there. You, you did mention, uh, so Wilbur, he, he integrates a lot of Plotinus into his work. He references him a lot. He kind of studies and takes a extra from Plotinus and perhaps other thinkers in his, in his uh, writing and his thought. Definitely. In terms of incorporating Western thought, um, Plotinus is one of the huge touchstones in Wilbur's work around integrating Western thought into his system. Okay, so let's let's flip this question around. So, sure. so hopefully every Gnostic in the world is watching the show. If they're not, they're going to Gnostic Hell. I don't know if there is a Gnostic Hell, but if there is, you're going there if you're not watching this. Uh, why would a Gnostic integrate integralism into the, their worldview and practice? Instead of saying you know, older systems and maps of meaning that are already intermeshed with Gnosticism. Like there's, there's, you know, many Gnostics are eclectic, but there's only so many hours in a day. So, so, you know, we talked a lot last show about maps of meaning, uh, about charts, uh, about graphs, uh, and the Western esoteric tradition loves those, if you think about Kabbalah or Martinism, and right. these are schools of thought that are already, you know, stuck in with Gnosticism. So, so what's the appeal for, for a Gnostic to look at digital spirituality? Yeah, it's a, that's another great question. I think it uh, it kind of cuts back to some of what I was saying at the in the early part of our conversation today. Um, so you wouldn't take your existing, say you're into Martinism and Kabbalah, right? Mm -hmm. You study some tarot, maybe. So you've got all those maps in your in your head. So what you wouldn't do is read some Wilbur and then go, oh, great. Okay, so what he's saying fits into the tree of life like this, you know, and these tarot cards correspond to these things in Wilbur's map. And, you know, so to try to take the integral map and fit it in with your existing maps, because mm -hmm. um, that's not going to get you anything useful. <laughs> <laughs> what it is useful to do is take the integral map and lay it over the top, sort of look through it at the maps that you've got. So the kinds of spiritual practice that you undertake the kind of maps of meaning that you've got, the kinds of teachers that you read and listen to, and looking at all that stuff through the lens of integral theory. So to some extent, you've got to go off, grasp those concepts in that map that's in integral theory, and then use that as a lens to look back at what you're already doing to reveal the locations of where what you're doing fits into this bigger picture of, of reality. Now, that's difficult, right? Because most esoteric systems tell you they're giving you the map of reality. Yes. So to kind of say that there's this more encompassing map of reality sounds like a sort of superiority dominance claim kind of a thing. But it's not. What it's, what it's saying is these things are true within their context, mm -hmm. but you've got to understand the context. 
So right. integral theory tries to paint a map of the possible context that we can understand. So you can put that theory within its appropriate context. Um, and if you don't get that, then you're probably getting trapped by things in the tradition that you've taken up that you might not be entirely aware of. To jump sideways slightly, you wouldn't use Kabbalah to do subatomic physics. Right. Different context, and we all get that. Similarly, trying to use subatomic physics to think about spirituality, lots of people try and do it. It doesn't get you very far. Yeah. <laughs> right? Wrong context. So what you've got to understand is what's the context in which each of these things does their job really well? Is there a relationship between them? And then how do I navigate that space? And so integral theory kind of gives you a way to, to answer those those sorts of questions. Yeah. Um, um, and there's some key places. I, there's some key places for Gnostics. So uh, let's see if we've got time to go back to that. Keep going and then we'll no, see how to... Oh, no, I'm no, please. I'm, I'm trying not to talk over the top of your questions too much. This oh, time. no, no. I thought, I, thought, <laughs> I thought that pause was you were done, but I, I want to... You know, This is the talk gnosis show, so if you could keep going off on that, that would be awesome. Look, um, there's two key things I think that I think Integral gives me as a way to reflect on Western esotericism in general and Gnosticism specifically. So one thing is the thing we talked about last time, um, the idea of uh, gross or concrete states, mm -hmm. subtle states, and causal states that are characterized by spacious awareness, right? Um, so that that sort of triple model of state stages there's a well actually beyond causal there's the world of uh, there's the stage which isn't a stage of non-dual awareness which is a whole separate thing so that little map that little bit of the map all on its own is really helpful for looking at any spiritual system because most spiritual systems cover some of that map but not all of that map um, and they often muddle things up right so one thing is that a lot of western esotericism doesn't make a clear distinction between subtle theory about subtle states or maps about subtle states and maps about causal states or practices about causal states. So for instance, um, if you're into Kabbalah, you use the tree of life, maybe you're coming from a, a Dion Fortune background or, um, or some Golden Dawn derived practice and they present you with the, here's the tree of life, right? And we do path working to navigate the tree of life, right? And you go up the tree of life and then you sort of there's all these different experiences characterized by the different um, spheres on the on the map, and then you get to the top to Keter, and then beyond Keter there's these transcendent states, right? And so if you keep path working and then go beyond that, so those are all subtle states mm -hmm. from the point of view of the integral map. Um, you might accidentally fall off the end and wind up with something that's referred to as a causal state, but it's probably not likely because path working is an imaginative practice. Um, so you're largely generating increasingly refined subtle states. To, to, to shift to, to causal states requires you to take up a different kind of practice, formless meditation probably, um, that you're not going to get there from path working. But the systems that promote path working don't generally make that distinction. So it's really easy for a very subtle state to masquerade as a causal state. And unless you're clear on what those differences are, you're going to go astray and you're going to get stuck doing causal, uh, subtle stuff. And remember, these are this is a sequence. So first you work out about gross concrete states, stuff to do with your physical body, going out into nature, looking at sunsets, feelings of awe, the stuff that any kid can do, right? 
that, is, that remain good spiritual practices through the whole of life. You don't, we don't let go of those. It doesn't get less, it doesn't get less delightful to stand on a cliff, face the ocean with the wind blowing at you and look at the sun setting or rising over the sea, depending on which coast you're on, right? It remains a reliable spiritual state. The subtle states are really valuable and you've got to cultivate them. They, they don't stop being useful. They're helpful for all kinds of things. But if you're just doing that and you're not shifting, also shifting, you know, once you've kind of got a bit of fluency there, if you're not also shifting to practices which cultivate spacious awareness and let you rest in contentless states of mind where thoughts begin to cease arising and your awareness is drawn to the contentless experience of presence, then you're giving up early <laughs> and you need to keep going, right? Yeah. And then... Yeah, there's other ways to get those maps, but I think in the in the West, it's a particularly, it's a particularly helpful, that bit of integral theory is particularly helpful for teasing apart things because if a, if a particular teacher ha has only attained a certain point in that map, Mm -hmm. They will not be aware that there's anything beyond it. And they'll be reading other people's teaching and reflecting it back to you as though they've understood the whole thing. Right. So that's really crucial. Um, the second piece of the map is the general developmental sequence. Uh, we talked about that as unfoldment last time. That through the course of life, we begin as children making meaning in certain ways. And, and our meaning making proceeds through a sort of fairly predictable series of stages. And again... Different teachers are at a certain point in that that sequence, that that lifelong developmental sequence when they're writing and teaching, and they aren't going to be aware of where they were. <laughs> so, different teachings are coming from different different points in that in that process. So, um, a simple way to look at it is to 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 think that we we go from an egocentric stage when we're little kids. You, you know, you, you talk to a kid around sort of from birth to four and they're mostly about them. You know, they can be sweet and charming and delightful, but mostly what they're what they're about in the world is themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> getting, getting what they want, enjoying the physical pleasures of their body. So it's it's very physical. You know, they can talk and think and whatever, but but most of their focus is on themselves and on their physical body. Um, we move from that egocentric stage to a to, if you like, an ethnocentric stage, where we mostly what we care about is the people we're physically connected to. Initially, just our caregiver, and then our family, and then our community, and people who are like us in some way. And we learn what like us means from the people around us, right? Um, so that sort of stage, what we're mostly concerned about is that we understand the rules and that we fit in and that we kind of understand how our connections with other people work and how we stay safe, yeah? Mm -hmm. So as we move beyond that stage, we get to a stage that's um, more interested in the internal content of our experience. So we start to get more curious about our own ideas, um, what we know, uh, our own feelings, our own thoughts, the images that are going on inside us. You know, those, those images are happening from when we're little kids, but we get really curious about them at a certain point. So as you sort of get through kind of like high school and college, you watch that thing that happens for kids in kind of uh, here in kind of early high school in the in North America kind of middle school, I think you call it, as kids go through that phase of like that really intense about really fitting in. Mm -hmm. And then one by one, you watch kids kind of go, but I'm actually myself. There's endless mythic stories about 
the hero who is part of a community and then boldly goes out and discovers how to be themselves, you know? Yeah. And the hero is of any gender these days, you know, as, as kids work out how to, there's lots of stories for kids about learning to be yourself. Um, so we go through that phase and we become about ourselves again, the, the internal content, right? And teaching that comes from that kind of, there's a lot of spiritual teaching that comes from that stage. A lot yeah. of Christianity comes from that stage, relying on the understanding that you're not your body, that you're, that there's a, intangible mysterious aspect to yourself which is within you and by looking within you can come to understand this untangible mysterious aspect and you can come to trust it more than you can trust the people around you so there's lots of spiritual teaching that tells you that stuff but that's very early teaching it's crucial to make that transition but it's actually really early teaching so where we go from there is to understand that actually everybody else has special mysterious insides also right yeah, yeah. And they're all making their own sense of the world from the perspective of their own special mysterious insights. And some of our special and mysterious insights aren't actually that special. We've got them in common with lots of other people. And so we start to get fascinated by the ways in which our, our internal concepts of ourselves mesh with other people's concepts of themselves. And we start to realize that we've got fellow feeling with other people that aren't about where we were born. And they aren't about the culture that we're in or the religion that we grew up with or what our class is, but they're about something else something really individual and special, but special in a shared way, not special in an individual way. And that can be very disorienting. There's quite a lot of spiritual teaching about initially letting go of, of the isolation and the individual and opening up to a, a shared world of, of mystery. Yeah. That's very powerful. But again, it's quite early in, in this process. And some people start to do that. Some people are doing that in their early 20s now, whereas once upon a time, that was something that happened in your 50s. Um, but yeah. as the internet is a fuel for this kind of transition, right? And we, we take it on, but it's also very baffling because not all those different ways of understanding each other make similar amounts of sense or are similarly valid or similarly useful in the world. So we go through this sort of like little teeter from enmeshing ourselves in that to realizing that we've got to kind of actually categorize things a little bit and pick some ways of looking at the world which might render more truth and might me be more effective and might allow us to be more compassionate and make more sense of the world so we make a little distinction and that's a very powerful stage that's uh, in some theories they call that the the strategist stage okay because you start to see how all these global systems can fit together and how we're part of economies and how we're part of you know which are which are just made up right <laughs> to understand mechanisms like social construction and we start to understand things like systemic issues systemic racism stuff like that um we can see that there's patterns in the ways that we behave and think with each other that create certain effects that's a really important insight and the trouble is that when you try and talk about that to people if people are at a, a slightly earlier stage they can't see what you're pointing to. Yeah. So if someone's at a stage where they're mostly interested in the content of their own experience and they haven't kind of started that opening out process, or if they're at the open, early stage of the opening out process and they haven't started to kind of look at the different ways in which things fit together, what you're talking about might just be invisible. So this is a, this is a standard thing in, in how development, how human development works. We, at earlier stages, it's not just that we're not focusing on things. We, we simply can't see some things. There's a classic experiment where they show, they show kids like a tall, thin glass 
and a mm -hmm. short glass. And they fill the tall thin glass up with colored water and they go, okay, right? So, and then they pour the fat into the short fat glass. And I ask the kid like, which glass has the more water in it? And when kids are young, they say the tall thin glass, obviously it's taller, right? Yeah. It's more water in it. Despite the fact that you're taking this, the water and pouring it into, and the adults are like, what do you mean? How can you possibly think that? The kid can't see what the adult can see. And importantly, the adult can't remember not being able to see it. Yeah. Because there's an age where, you know, six months apart, you bring the same kid back in, you do the same experiment. The kid goes, what are you talking about? It's the same amount of water. Are you insane? Right? They can't remember themselves being at that age. We can't recall what it was like to be at that point. So this whole development thing is an important context for everything because of that fact. At a certain stage, we can't see the world the same way that a person at a later stage can see it. And mostly people at later stages aren't able to see the world from the frame of someone at an earlier stage. And this is a cause of a lot of confusion and disagreement. So past that stage of, of making those small distinctions, those distinctions and being able to see systemic effect, then there's stages that unfold after that where the, the whole content of the mind thing becomes radically less interesting. And we start to see the whole thing as a constructed play of, of empty forms. And our concern becomes more about Matrix awareness and and fundamental well-being, uh, Jeffrey Martin calls it, um, which I think is a really lovely term. And we begin to unfold into more expansive um, senses of that. So if you can't if you can't distinguish between teaching that comes from those different stages, or teaching at earlier stages that is kind of masquerading as teacher from teaching from a later stage, it's very difficult to know if you're actually making progress or if you're simply going around in circles. Yeah. So you kind of have to understand where the teaching's at and you kind of have to have a fair bearing of where you're at or you need to associate with a, a guide or a teacher that, that's able to help you see that yourself. So then that gets us to the whole question of teachers and, and how that all works, but yeah. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to talk about teachers and all that and how, how all that works? Go <laughs> off, King. Yeah, well, the... This isn't really integral theory. This is a whole, we should do a whole show on teachers, really. Oh, okay. In that case, <laughs> let's. Teachers, um... teachers and whether or not to have them, I suppose. Okay. Um, that, that, that would actually be a really wicked show. And, and because we only have about 15 minutes left, I will put a pin in it. And of course, I do like having uh, future shows already booked with my favorite guests. It's so... always a good thing. So there's, there's, two, there's two dimensions that I that I talked about before that I can foreshadow quickly that I, yeah. that maybe we can come back to. So, so one is part of that five part model of Wilbur's is, is the idea of lines of development. Yeah. Which I think we talked a bit about last time. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, you've got to understand, like we tend to think that when you, you introduce someone to the idea of development and it's not a, that's not a foreign idea, right? Like all spiritual yeah. systems have this idea that you develop through stages. Um, these days, that's also backed up by psychological research and there's different, but, and what we discover is there isn't one sequence of development. You go through one sequence of development that's about your cognitive ability to understand complexity, right? Mm -hmm. You go through a sequence of development about um, ethics and morality. Uh, Kohlberg and Carol Gilligan looked at this. Gilligan talks about it as expanding circles of care. First, you just care about yourself. Then you care about your family. Then you care about your tribe, however you think of it. Then you start to care about your nation. Then you care about the world. Then you care about all living things. And that just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. 
So there's a there's one developmental sequence about cognitive stuff. There's one developmental sequence about morals and ethics. There's one developmental sequence about spiritual insight. There's a developmental sequence about your sense of yourself. There's a developmental sequence about your ability to function in socio-emotional context, your ability to deal with, you know, uh, emotional intelligence and, and EQ stuff, right? And each of these are, they're, they're connected in some way, but they're not tied together. So you can get someone who's very advanced cognitively, but not particularly advanced ethically. Right. And our recent history is littered with such examples. Yes. What's not obvious to a lot of people is that you can meet someone who's very advanced spiritually and can attain very, very advanced spiritual states and evidence that, but who isn't necessarily very advanced cognitively and who isn't necessarily very advanced from an ethical point of view. Well, you know, that that sounds like it should be counterintuitive. And I think if people are following the world of religion, spirituality and meditation closely lately, then uh, perhaps that is an idea that's familiar to them. But like it's, uh, it's, it's every it's every second week at the moment, you know, communities yeah. exploding because their teachers had an inappropriate sexual relationship with someone or someone's been arrested. You know, there are there are certainly religious traditions where <laughs> as soon as someone starts talking about high meditative states, you you're just the time is on until they revealed to have an inappropriate sexual relationship with a student. We yeah. all know that there's, there's, you know, mainstream Christians who the second they start talking about homosexuals, the clock's tick until they're arrested in a motel with a hooker, right? It's seconds yeah. away, right? So that we ought to know. And yet we all carry, because largely what the traditions tell us is that spiritual advancement and ethical development are the same thing. The evidence shows us they're not, and that's a that's a cause that ought to be a cause of real care when when trying to look for a teacher, because to some extent you can switch teachers to find someone that can lead you to more important spiritual states, mm -hmm. but ethical behaviour's really got to be at the you know you've got to be able to trust the person that you're committing yourself to, otherwise how can you commit? So that's really crucial. Yep. The second thing is shadow, and so the whole. It'd be great to do a longer conversation just about that, but the whole way in which that developmental journey also involves foregrounding and then putting, you know, denying and, and disposing of aspects of yourself, kind of putting them in the basement and that the collection of denied aspects of yourself as you grow up and develop form psychological shadow and the stuff that's formed very early, you know, in the first year of life are fundamentally destabilizing to the personality. Right. The younger it is, the more sort of emotional uh, difficulty you get yourself into by having denied material. And everybody has it. We all grow up with that stuff. So the question is, have you done anything to deal with it or not? And a huge number of teachers. There are. It's actually quite rare to find spiritual teachers who have done anything about it because they tell themselves that their spiritual practice is going to fix it all up. And there are certainly certain things that spiritual practice helps and eases, but there are absolutely aspects of psychological shadow which your spiritual practice won't just not fix. It will also help you remain blind to its existence. And that is a, for spiritual teachers and their students, that is a situation of utmost peril. Yeah. I can't say that in the strongest possible terms. And that's what we see in uh, spiritual abuse settings and and all these things of, of communities blowing up is teachers that simply haven't handled dilemmas and disowned aspects of themselves from early parts of their lives. And your teacher must have an answer to the question, 
what do you do? <laughs> what are you doing about your trouble in childhood? Yeah. <laughs> and if they if they can't tell you convincing things about what they're doing, you should turn around and walk out that door and not come back. Or just make sure that you're looking after yourself and that you've you know that you're you're going to them for what they're teaching you, but you're not trusting them with your well-being. Yeah. Yeah. So no, like, I'm gonna write it on my hand, tell everybody else I know is a spiritual seeker. Ask your teacher, what are you doing about your troubling childhood? Because we all had a troubling childhood. It doesn't matter how nice it seems. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we will come back to both teacher and shadow, probably in two separate shows. <laughs> um, but there's there's a little teaser, folks. And it'd be, good, it'd be good to get some other voices involved in those conversations as well. Yeah, perhaps we can have a panel. I think it'll be super fun. So we'll put a pin in it. All you loyal talk gnosis heads, Gnosticoi, the Gnostic elite, that, that's what I'll call our fans. Uh, come back for that. It's going to be great. We'll have some awesome panels. Maybe I'll try to do Shadow for, for Halloween. Uh, are there implications for cross-tradition, interfaith, and interreligious dialogue? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Absolutely. Great. Okay, next question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there, there absolutely are. The, the stuff that makes interfaith, it's all about this question of context, right? Mm -hmm. All about the question of context. It's all about, like, if two, if people from two different traditions can locate themselves within a broader map that helps them understand what they're focusing on and what they're not, and what are important differences and what are not important differences, then that's a huge help for interfaith dialogue. Yeah? Yes. So, for instance, if if you've got a... Let's stick with a uh, Christian and a Buddhist. If you've got a Christian and a Buddhist and they're both coming from communities whose focus developmentally is on that stuff about um, rules and fitting in, right? Like it's really easy to find Christian communities that are mostly focused on what are the rules and how do I fit in? Yeah. Um, and it may surprise Western Buddhists to know this, but you can also really easily find Buddhist communities that are mostly about what are the rules and how do I fit in? So if you put people from those two communities together, they will have a fight <laughs> because the rules are different and there's no point in them really talking. You can admire each other from a distance for whatever headgear you're wearing perhaps or your robes, but it's probably not that useful to have an interfaith dialogue between those two communities, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you've got a Christian and a Buddhist community who are serious spiritual practitioners and they've, um, in each community, they've, um, acquired experience of certain spiritual states that, that are roughly in the subtle realm, you can have some really fascinating conversations because you're less concerned about what the rules are and more concerned about with the experiences that you've had. And you can kind of work out, you can kind of calibrate what you're talking about. Oh, I see, right. That's not how it works for us, but I can see kind of, yeah, I can see how we connect together. So for interfaith dialogue, it's, it's pretty important if you're going to do it, that you're talking to people that are in a similar experiential space to the space that you're in even though their tradition might be different. So Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs, and Christians, all of whom undertake some form of meditation practice and have experiences, subtle state experiences, are going to have a bunch of interesting conversations. And if they're, if developmentally they're more interested in their own experience and they're more interested in, or they've moved to that, that later stage, a very individualist stage of, of finding connections between their subtle experiences and other people's subtle experiences and how that how that forms a, a larger system, then they're fascinating conversations. Like, it's really exciting. But if they're at an earlier stage and they're just concerned about rules and norms, not so cool. 
So you've got to have similar experiences and you've got to be coming from a similar space of meaning making to make an interfaith dialogue really productive. Otherwise, you're stuck with vague generalities like, well, you know, we all obey the golden rule, don't we? You've got to do unto others as they do unto you. It's many paths up the same mountain and many lights but the same lamp in the end, isn't it? Or lamps but the same light. Or isn't anyways, it nice being nice? Sorry? I said, isn't it nice being nice? It's nice being nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice yeah. being nice. Jesus what? wants it to be real nice. So does, yeah, so does Buddha, so does Muhammad. Let's yeah. all together, get together nice and be nice. nice. Let's yeah. be nice. And if we're all just nicer, the world would be nicer too, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, the world would be nicer place. Yeah. That, yeah. That's that's sort of pointless in a dialogue <laughs> to me. Some yeah. people get a charge out of it. More power to them. Please carry on. If... Uh... Someone's into what they've just heard about, uh, both in this show and the last one. Like, where's a good place to get started with all this? Because it sounds like a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Um, yeah. Well, what I guess I've been saying, and this is my bias. I mean, I I, I lead with with cognition uh, in my own developmental process, so I I always go there. So um, I think a really great intro to Wilbur, a really readable great intro to Wilbur, is is called a. Is it, humbly titled A Brief History of Everything. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's the first book I read, and I still think it's one of the most accessible books that he's, that he's written. Um, it's good. There's a couple of books specifically focused on spirituality. We could, I need to put these in the show notes um, once we're done, but yeah. One is called Integral Spirituality, very easy to find. Mm -hmm. Some people find that a bit heavy. There's a later book called um, The Religion of Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, Probably usually with Wilbur, the later book is the is the better one to read. So um, I'd do both of those in some way. In terms of other Wilbur books, uh, some people aren't led by concept and they're more drawn by where their heart goes. Wilbur wrote a, a book called Grace and Grit about the last year or two of his life with his wife. She died of cancer. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it's about integral theory and it's also about a couple who love each other going through one of them dying um and something about the combination of those for some people because it's led by the heart gives them a, a better intro to, to kind of how the head stuff works um so i guess i'd recommend those so a brief history of everything grace and grit and the religion of tomorrow i suppose is, is probably what i'd recommend for wilbur specifically um but there's a world of reading so I guess I'd start there because it gives you a reasonable grounding. You know what? The other book I'd recommend, and this is to kind of uh, take a more Gebser approach to integral, um, and that's more that sort of stuff about diaphaneity and, you know, translucence of time and so on that we talked about last time. And that's a book called Seeing Through the World by um, Jeremy Johnson. Jeremy Johnson, Jeremy Jordan. Why have I suddenly blanked on his name? I'm looking to my shelf. I'll put it in the show notes. Seeing through, seeing through the world. And it's a very short, extremely readable introduction to the thought of Jean, Jean Gebser. Jeremy's the president of the Jean Gebser Society. I might have name checked that last time, but um, we'll put it in the notes again this time. They're yeah, all good to start as books. Great. Yeah. 
Okay, fantastic. Well, we got uh, a bunch of feedback and questions that people wanted to address uh, from the last show. We haven't gotten to a single one. Each one is dense. One of them is unfolding of states, state stages as a meta theory of spirituality. So obviously, we're not going to have time to get to that. Well, we we we, we talked about that. We've talked yeah, about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the That's developmental fine. states, where are people coming from, belief interpretation, we more or less t covered that. Uh, quote-unquote mean memes, state of developments that seem to have greater conflicts. Didn't quite get into that, so we'll save that all for part three. Sure. Uh, as well as the Shadow episode, the Spiritual Leaders episode, uh, Bishop Tim, it sounds like you're going to be back a whole bunch more times. We can't wait. The audience can't wait. Uh, okay, so we better go into the home stretch here. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to know more, slash interact with you, slash uh, ask you questions about uh, integral spirituality everything else uh you can find me on twitter as tim j mansfield um that's largely not a spiritual twitter feed <laughs> you're welcome to dm me there and ask ask me questions that's that's nice and easy um it's hard to find me talking about integral theory online to be honest um in general of course joanite.org is the is the church website and you can you can contact me through that um by email if you like yeah uh get in touch if you're interested in this stuff get in touch and if you're interested in like if you're, if you're in a specific spot and you're interested in some more targeted recommendations to kind of help you kind of see where you're at and work out what moving forward might look like, um, hit me up um, and we'll chat and I'll, I'll see what I can do. See if I can point you in the right direction. Always, happy, always happy to talk, always happy to, to do what I can to help. So. Extremely groovy. Sorry, you take you take very meaningful and beautiful pauses, but I, I never know if that is <laughs> the pause or... <laughs> But it's good. It's good public speaking. Keep I should do that. Like, yes. I'm talking. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. perhaps, perhaps next time you come on that or we'll have like a, a green light, red light system. Okay, folks. we got to give you the commercial again. That's patreon.com slash Gnostic. Uh, please, whatever you can. Uh, I know these are tough times. Again, just like what I said at the beginning, uh, if you can give as little as a dollar per piece of content, that's great. In return, you get the shows early. You get them up to a, a week early. Uh, you also get uh, your names in the credits. I'm trying to think of other things we can give you because we don't want to put anything behind a paywall. If you have any ideas, anything you want from me, you just send it in. Chances are we'll give it to you for money. If you don't like the show, donate to our Patreon and I can give you my personal phone number. You can call me and yell at me. Uh, also, if you want to do a one-time payment, you don't want the Patreon recurring payment, you can go to pay paypal.me slash Gnostic uh, and uh, drop in whatever amount of money you want. If you want to throw us 50 cents there, that would be well appreciated. So this folks, is... Uh, oh, go ahead. Quick, super quick. Folks, support creators. Yeah. If, you, if you tune into this stuff and you appreciate what you're seeing, support the creators that are giving you the, the things that you love. It's easy to... It's, we're constantly under pressure to turn this stuff into a trade. It's not a trade. Jonathan doesn't do this because he's getting paid. He does it because he loves it. Exactly. If you love what he's doing, donate. Oh, thanks so much, Bishop. So listen to Bishop Tim's Mansfield. He is a wise man. <laughs> Beautiful advice there. Okay, this is Deacon Jonathan Stewart, live from Montreal, signing off. We'll catch you all next time. Good night. Good night. Thank you.